0: I wanted to start tonight, I know Rob did a fantastic job last week giving us an overview of Isaiah, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to, but there's a few things i got to fill in, just because each one of us is a little different, we have a little different, we have a little different outline of the book potentially, and, and I think there's some things that are helpful for us to have in mind before we jump into chapter one of Isaiah. Um, the first is just a question, really, it's like, why do we read the Old Testament, if we're New Covenant Christians, why do we read the Old Testament? Um, well, because it's the prequel, right? I mean, it's the beginning of the story. Um, as some of this might hit you a little sideways. Don't throw things out, okay? we Talk to me afterwards if it doesn't make sense, but um, it's the same religion. The Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the same religion. And what I mean by that it's not all carried out the same way, right? But it's the same God. And it's a relationship that's very similar Old Testament to New Testament. Now there are some different constraints, right, between how Israel, how God dealt with Israel and how through Jesus he deals with us. But it's the same God, the same relationship. Um, so there are things that we can glean out of the Old Testament for sure. Not. I'm probably preaching to the choir. You guys come into Trail. We've always taught out of both the Old and the New Testament. Um, but it's good for us to remind ourselves why we go back and look at these ancient texts. And and it helps us to make sense of what we can draw out of them. Um, maybe, and I, I'll say this up front a little bit, maybe we need to look a little bit differently at the Old Testament than than the way we have historically. Um and I'll qualify that a little bit more in a few minutes too, I think, if I remember. <laughs> um, another reason is because their Messiah that they're still waiting for, right? The Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. He's actually our Messiah. He's already come. They just missed him, right? Um, they didn't recognize him. Uh, they didn't recognize him. They also didn't recognize that it's based on faith, not performance, right? And, and, uh, but it's even in the Old Testament... Okay, this is what I'm saying. It was based on faith in the Old Testament too, not performance. They did not earn their way into the kingdom of heaven, just like we don't earn our way into the kingdom of heaven. Um, because Abraham had faith, it was accounted to him righteous, as righteousness, right? He was counted as righteous. Uh, same thing for us. It's about faith, not performance. Um, the Jewish people, especially after the exile, but even before the exile, they really had perfected... Uh, the following of the law, of all of the moral law, the ceremonial law, the ritualistic or the uh, sacrificial law of the Torah. Um, and wh- it, but why didn't that work? I mean, Paul said that he was guiltless in the eyes of the law, right? But it didn't work for him. It didn't bring, his, didn't bring him righteousness because it didn't cause a change here, right? They were able to perform and do things on the outside, but it didn't cause a heart change. It didn't change them on the inside. It didn't transform them. They misunderstood the law. They misunderstood the Torah. They received it as a list of do's and don'ts. Now, we sometimes do that, too, because we really, it's like, what are the parameters, right? How much can I get away with? How close to that edge of the cliff can I get before I'm going to fall in? You know, what's, what's, what's it going to take, what's the bare minimum is sometimes what we're looking for. What's the bare minimum for us to get into heaven when really we should be wanting to live a righteous life that's pleasing to God and bringing his blessing into our lives. Um, so they received it as a list of do's and don'ts, but maybe we should consider that it's, consider this, if you would, maybe it's a lens The law, and I'm talking about the law in particular here. Uh, Maybe it's a lens into the character of God, what he's like. You think of some of the really odd things that are in Leviticus about, you know, don't wear clothing that's mixed, that's cotton and polyester, or not polyester, but whatever else is in this, because it's not... This isn't just pure cotton, right? We wear mixed clothes all the time. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, okay? So, So don't get... And I'm also, (laughs) do hear what I am saying. I'm not saying, I'm not going to say that we should go back and be Jewish either, okay? So I'll say that up front. Um, But there are things we can draw out of that law. One of the things that, that those kinds of laws that we look at and think, they're head scratchers, right? But it's talking about God's purity, that God is pure, that he's holy. And he wanted his people to be set apart, and even though they didn't understand this part about not mixing their clothes or or particular foods, right, the food uh, food laws that would have been involved, um, it was about pure, about God's pureness and God's holiness and obedience to Him. It wasn't necessarily about the particular things that maybe felt like they were um, prohibited, right? Um, so they misunderstood it. And I'm proposing that maybe we need to look back at it as a lens that shows us the character of God, showing us his purity, his holiness, his goodness, and his love. It's also a lens into our character, um, which is pretty much just the opposite of God's character. We're impure, we're sinful, we're unrighteous, and we're selfish, especially before God does a work in us, right? But even after God does a work in us, at least I struggle with selfishness at times still. Um, you know, God's continually working on that in me and in my heart and in my life. Um, continuously working on sinful behaviors, on my, my unrighteousness. And thankfully, it's not about my performance, right? It's about Jesus' performance, about what he did. It's why we took communion. It's remembering him, putting our hope and trust and faith in him. So it was the law... It was meant to set them apart from the nations that surrounded them. And all they ever wanted to do was to be just like the nations around them. They wanted to have a king like the nations around them. They wanted to have, uh, you know, they wanted to have multiple gods just like the nations around them. They said, well, that fertility ritual stuff that they're doing out there, that, that kind of looks fun. We should participate in that too. Um, you know, and they they mixed all of these other things, they continued to act like they were worshiping Yahweh and that they were holy and righteous and and on the outside, from all appearances, oftentimes things were really good in their lives um but they added in all of these other things because they didn't understand God's pureness, his holiness um Do you see any parallels in the church today? I mean, it happens quite often where where we think performance is where it's at, where what God really wants is our heart. He wants a relationship with us, right? He doesn't, it's not about church attendance. It's not about church tithing. It's not about how often you read your Bible. It's not about how often you pray. Those are all good things. Those are all things we should be participating in and doing on a regular basis, but none of those things earn us righteousness. It's all about, all, 100% about our faith and trust in the Lord. Do you see any parallels in your own life if you do, I have one word for you, repent. Repent and turn back to the Lord. Um, another reason that we read the Old Testament <clears throat> is that it gives us a better view of the transcendent God. Now, what do I mean by transcendent? There's two terms that are used to describe God. One is transcendent. It means he's, he's over and above everything. He's outside of the creation. He's immense and he's glorious and he's holy and he's powerful. He's powerful. And this is really, especially when we get to Isaiah 6, you're going, we're going to see this when during Isaiah's call. Um, but it's his transcendence, how above, how other than us he is, how separated we are from him. Um, again, it's showing his, his holiness and purity and just his grandeur, how big he is and, and how insignificant we are in so many ways. What makes us significant is that we're created in his image and he's chosen to love us. That's where our significance comes from. That's where, I'd, where our identity comes from. Um, the other side of that is God's his, uh, eminence, his, his closeness to us, his direct relationship to us. And we see this in Jesus so much. And this is why as New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians, we focus on God's eminence so much. He's our, he's our friend. Jesus is our friend. He's our brother. Uh, he's close to us. He's like somebody we can talk to. And those things are all true. Um, but the reason they're true for us is because we know the Jesus that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? He rode in in peace, bringing peace. He continues to do that today. He's bringing peace. He's still on that colt. Um, but where do we get the... We get a picture of a different Jesus, right? Do you guys know where that is? Revelation, Revelation 19, yeah. Revelation 19, through 20, I think it is. 11 through 16. And what's he riding there? He's riding a white horse, a war horse, and he's not coming in peace anymore. Uh, he's coming in vengeance and judgment. We want to know the Jesus of peace, but we also need to be aware of this other Jesus. This is more like the transcendent God, representing the transcendent God. Um, Jesus on on the white horse. He is, uh, we think, meek and mild. Well, meekness doesn't mean mild. It means power under control. Meekness is a good thing. It's power under control. This is going to be still power under control, but with a very specific purpose, to judge the world. And for anybody who's not in relationship with him, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Um, another reason why we read the Old Testament is, uh, in fact, you should turn there. Second Timothy, so New Testament, towards the end of it, if you find anything in the New Testament that starts with a T, you're close to Timothy. First and second Thessalonians, and then uh, Timothy, and then the Tituses. This would be a really familiar verse. You may, many of you may have it memorized. 2 Timothy 3.16. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's reminding him. In verse 16 here, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word, uh, the word, well, and for training and righteousness, training, instruction. This would be a much better connection for us to Torah, which we often think. If, if you think Torah, don't, do you think law? I mean, you think Old Testament, you think law, right? Uh, instruction actually would be a much better translation of that word for Torah, or the word Torah. Um, it's instruction. It's how to live. It's how to live a holy and righteous life. It's it's not a list of things that hey, do these or. Oh, the whip's coming out, right? I mean, there may be discipline for purpose, um, but there's good reasoning behind it. I this is probably the wrong point in the sermon to say this, but I'm going to say it now anyway because it keeps bouncing up into my head. There's, you guys are, you know, everybody knows what the law of gravity is, right? When you jump off of a two-story building and there's going to be consequences. We understand that. We see it. We see it demonstrated all the time. There are spiritual realities Consequences for our actions as well. They're just not quite as clear to us because maybe they're a little more delayed. This is what the instruction of the Torah is about. It's like, and in the New Testament, the things that Jesus calls us to be obedient to. It's, it's, uh, there are spiritual consequences for living an immoral, impure life. That's the reality. Just like the power of gravity, that you jump, you're going to fall. Um, there's no difference. We just don't receive that the same oftentimes because it's, it's not as clear to us. Does, does that, is that making sense? Yeah, I see a few heads. Okay, good. All right. Um, but God has to spell it out so much more. To He doesn't have to tell us in his word about gravity. We know. Um, we know about what we would call the natural laws of physics, right? We, we understand those and, and we see them demonstrated on a regular basis. We also tend to know if you do something... I mean, this is the same thing. You do something that's hard on your body and you know you're going to pay for it down the road, right? Um, same thing with, with spirit, the spiritual realities are identical to these physical realities. We do things that are against God's word. It's going to cost us down the road. Um, it's going to cost us spiritually. It may even cost us physically. Uh, and God certainly, if we're one of his, he's going to bring discipline into our lives in order to bring correction. And that's always a good thing, but it is coming. The correction is coming. Uh, So, all scriptures breathed out and profitable. And what would Paul have been talking about when he would have said scripture here? Matthew to Revelation, right? Mm, No. Why not? Didn't exist yet, right? Uh, Genesis to Malachi, maybe? Maybe. Genesis to Revelation, all of scripture? That's what we would say for sure. That is the scriptural canon, right, that we've received, that we've accepted from Genesis to Revelation. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's all profitable. Paul probably would have been talking about Genesis to Second Chronicles, actually, or Chronicles, as they would have known it. Um, did you guys pick up one of these sheets on your way in? You, several people didn't. Sharon, could, could you guys pass these out for anybody who didn't get one? One side of this is going to look really familiar because I passed it out about a year and a half ago when we were in Kings. Um, the other side is new to us passing it out anyway. Um, so look at once you get that look at the books of the Tanakh the the part that looks like a a little bit of a uh, it's cartoonish it's uh, what do you call that animated somewhat Um, and look at so this is what the Tanakh is is that it's it's a I don't know Abbreviation—that's not really the right word—but it—it's it, the first letter of these three words here. So it's Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, which is the law or instruction, prophets, and the writings. Three delineations of. Oh yeah, it's up there too. It's handy. Thanks, Dem. Um, three delineations. This is how the Hebrew Bible was laid out. Uh, and look, I want you to what I want you to see here is the connections, because the all of these books we receive them as inspired. The layout, the, the canon, if you will, of the Hebrew Bible um, perhaps also was inspired. And here's why I would say that. If you look at the connections that are made, the 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 instructions, the Torah, the law, when it ends in Deuteronomy, the last message there in Deuteronomy is. But there was no prophet like Moses, that there's never been another prophet like Moses. And then it moves right straight into the prophets into what we would think of as historical documents, judges, or Joshua judges, Samuel Kings, um, and then the, the what we today would call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, the 12. Um, they looked at all of those as as prophets the former and the latter you can see that delineation there so he says the writer moses and then um probably a later editor that added a little bit of points here there their commentary actually into it. it says but there's been no prophet like Moses and then boom we move right into the prophets and we go through the prophets and you, and you see in their lives failure and um, that nobody was as good as Moses and yet there's always been this hope because Deuteronomy also talked about there is one coming like Moses in the future there's a prophet like Moses coming and then we see all the prophets and it's like none of them are like Moses None of them are that. None of them are good, and they're not good enough. They're not, and and there's supposed to be one coming that's actually better than Moses. Um, And then when you get to the twelve, is actually we don't have a book called the twelve in our Bible, right? But that's what we would look at as the minor prophets: um, Jonah, Amos, and I'm not giving them to you in order. Hosea, uh, all of those, the last twelve books in our Old Testament, that is the twelve. Uh, it, was, it was considered one work, not one author, but one work grouped together for a message in the, in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. So this would have been the Bible of Jesus' day. And you see that, if you see the little caricature down there in the left-hand corner, it says, written about me, this is from Luke 24, 44, when he's on the road to Emmaus, um, he says, all of these things were written about me in the law, the Torah, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, and the Psalms was kind of shorthand for saying the Writings. It included all the wisdom writings that you can see there: Psalms, Proverbs, Job, um, the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Chronicles. And we went when we were going through Kings. I gave you this order in a little bit different, um, a different layout, and pointed out that the reason that that in the one of the reasons in the Hebrew Bible that it ends in Chronicles is it's ending with this message of hope. Um, it says it it uh, it ends with Cyrus giving the decree for the people to go back and rebuild the temple, and for everybody who's willing, go back to Jerusalem and do it. He's basically freeing all of these people that they've had captive for seventy years. He says you can go home if you want to, um, and many of them did. A lot of them stayed too, and that was that was fine. Um, so there is a, there's some really cool connections because of the way the Hebrews laid out their Bible, okay? Now, I'm not saying we need to go back to that necessarily, but I think it is, it's, it's helpful to know that, and it's not, it's not unworthy to read the Bible in that order, to read the Old Testament in that order from time to time, just to see how it flows, because it is a different flow than what our Old Testament has. Um, not necessarily saying it's better or worse. Some people would say it's much better I don't know. I wonder. Actually, I think I was going to get to this later. But if are you in Isaiah right now? Are you guys in Isaiah? Turn back a page. Turn back one page, and what do you see there? Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, right? What is that about? What's this story? M two words. What is that? What is the Song of Songs? It's a love story, isn't it? Would you guys agree it's a love story? Yeah. And it's probably an analogy about God's love for his people too. So not only is it, is it Solomon and Bathsheba, not Bathsheba, um, names escaping me. Anyway, not only is it about his relationship and his marriage there, but it's also about God and his people, um, God and the Jewish people, God and the church. It's a love story. It's a marriage And then what happens in the prophets? What happens in Isaiah? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, so you don't know, but I'll tell you ahead of time. God says, you've broken the covenant. You've broken our marriage covenant. Repent. And I know Rob shared this last week, three points um, that all the prophets are about. You've broken the covenant. Repent. No repentance? Then judgment for you and for the nations. But take heart, there's still hope, a future hope. For you and for the nations, that's that. That if you get nothing else out of our time in Isaiah, that three-point message about the prophets covers all of the prophets really, and um, it is the framework of them. God continuously reminding his people that you've broken the covenant. So anyway, my point being that our order of the Old Testament is not so far out of line either. Maybe God is actually cool enough, strong enough, powerful enough that he could take any order that was decided on by a group of men and make it flow and work the way he wants it to. Because look also, just turn to the end of your Old Testament. I promise we are going to get to Isaiah before the night's done, but, but I think this back, some of this background stuff here is really cool. Turn to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Chapter Four of Malachi, uh, and I'll just read to it rapidly here. It says, "For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubbled." Speaking of the end of the end of the age here, the day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise. With healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, pointing all the way back to the Torah, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That may not sound very hopeful on the surface, but think of this was written after Elijah has already been a prophet in Israel and has been taken up in the chariot of fire by the Lord. Um, but he's speaking another of another Elijah coming. Who, who's that? John the Baptist, yeah. So so our layout also has good connections and points towards future hope. Um, so, so I guess what I'm getting at is just don't throw out the order of the Bible that we have. Not that any of you were probably apt to. Um, but there are good reasons for the layout that the Hebrew Bible had that are valid for us to look at and to read and to glean things from, and also good things about the order of our Bible today too in the Old Testament. Um, but they are different, and it's it's helpful to be aware of that. I think. Um, if you were completely unaware of it, it might come as a shock to you that the Bible, the order of the books had changed over the years um, or at particular times in history, nothing recent. but um, So look at the list briefly again here, uh, just to kind of bring us up to speed where we've been. It's been over a year. We did a few New Testament books on Wednesday nights um, and then the... Uh, the Apostles Creed through the summer, so it's been just about a year ago that we were in Kings, and um, the the things that we're going to be looking at in Isaiah happened basically between Kings, Second Kings, chapter fifteen through twenty. So and I know it's been maybe even at least a good year and a half since we were in Second Kings. Might be a good idea for you to go back and just reread those chapters. It's the things that were happening in the world, in Isaiah's world, in Israel's world. When Isaiah had these visions and when these events happened in his life, so um, just to kind of put it into context of, of where it fits, it actually fits kind of right in the middle of Second Kings, the book of Isaiah does. All the prophets. In fact, the chart on the backside, that's a repeat, shows you who the kings were, when the prophets were um, teaching, and um, what year. They were happening, so you got on the on the left-hand side is the the Israel and Judah, the southern kingdom, and on the right-hand side is the northern kingdoms, the twelve tribes, and it stops early, of course, because they were all taken into captivity in 722, so 150 years before the south was taken into captivity or taken into exile in Babylon. Uh, so a few central themes that come out of Isaiah: judgment and hope, um, servanthood and kingdom. Trust and rebellion, arrogance and humiliation. Notice anything about these themes? They're all contrast, right? The two words that I mention in each time, they're, they're a contrast in all of those. Arrogance versus humiliation. Um, yeah, and those come out through the book. So be looking for those as we're going through. The uniqueness of Yahweh is another major theme. Um, he's unlike any God that any of the the other nations had any idea about. (laughs) Um, And the way to worship him was different. That's why his people were unique and set apart. Uh, Isaiah speaks of the nations, and then it also speaks of, which actually isn't just Isaiah, right? These are themes in Isaiah, but the nations, and the idea of God reaching out to the nations, not just to Israel, is also present from Genesis through Revelation. It's not a new concept. It's not a New Testament concept. It's been God's plan all along, and he spoke of it all the way through. Um, the Jewish nation was supposed to be a priest of nations to the world, but they turned, they turned inward instead of looking outward. Um, and righteousness is a major theme. So as we get into the text, let me give you a simple outline. Uh, Isaiah 1, 1 through 31 An overarching title for that would be the opening indictment. You're going to see what looks like a courtroom scene set up here. Um, So it's the opening indictment. It's God's indictment against his people. And verses 1 through 10, so the subheadings under that, verses 1 through 10 is the national situation. Um, 11 through 20 is the religious situation. 21 through 26, the social situation. And then 27 through 31 is resolving the tension between judgment and hope. And I'll give you those headings again if you're trying to write them down as, as we're screaming through them here. Um, so the national situation, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 1, and then we'll walk back through it. So uh, Actually, I'm going to read through sections, and we're going to walk back through it. So verses 1 through 10. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand." Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of your God, you people of Gomorrah. Now let's talk back through that section a little bit, just point out a few things. Um, this is the, the national situation, so the, the uh, well, what the nation of Israel is in the midst of, what they're like as a nation. It starts off here, we get um, uh, the who, what, and the when. This is the vision of Isaiah, who's the son of Amos. Now we don't know for sure who Amos is, but rabbinic tradition says that he was the brother of Uzziah, the king, which would have made Isaiah uh, the nephew of the king of Israel, right? This is how he had so much access into the courts. I mean, he just basically walked in whenever he wanted, um, and he, he was respected, he was listened to. It's also why uh, Isaiah is known as the prince of the prophets. He actually probably was a prince. In Israel um, it it also goes a long way to explain why we meant, I mentioned earlier that music is such a, a profound way into people's hearts poetry is another very um, profound way to communicate things and Isaiah the first part well a whole lot of Isaiah do you guys does your Bible have it like it's indented a lot right this this is poetry all of this is poetry when it's in big block form its narration But it's either poetry this way, or it's an oracle or a vision, which oftentimes are communicated through poetry. And we don't appreciate poetry a whole lot in the West. I don't appreciate poetry a whole lot, actually, to be frank with you. We don't understand it very well, actually. Um, But they did. They communicated with poetry, and they communicated with uh, music a lot. Um, And Isaiah's writing is like it's it's like pristine. He's he is well educated. It's like if, if it was music, he would be like Bach or Mozart or Beethoven, whichever one of those classics might be your favorite. Um, he was he was just an excellent writer. So the poetry and it, and it doesn't come across well in English as it as it would in Hebrew, um, which I don't read, so I don't know this personally. I'm sharing information I've read, right? But uh, but his the language that he used and the way that he wrote was just superb. Well. He had the time and the education to to be able to do that because he was the he was the king's nephew um, so it gives us the insight into why his writing is actually so much better than so many of the other prophets as a, as a contrast to Amos was a sheep herder you know so his writing wasn't his writing was like mine probably you couldn't read it and you couldn't understand it so No, but but Isaiah's uh, his writing was you, obviously he was well educated, um, so and it goes on. It says this is his vision that he saw concerning Judah, so concerning the southern tribes and Jerusalem, the city, so the nation and the city, and it happened in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were kings of Judah, and that's why I gave you this chart just so you could kind of put them into time frame where they're at 740 somewhere around there, 740 BC or BCE is when his uh, ministry would have started. And although, as Rob said last week, we don't know for sure, but again, rabbinic tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in half by uh, Manasseh, who was probably the worst king that, that uh, Israel had. Certainly the worst king that the south had, that the southern kingdom had, uh, which would have been uh, 693, 697, someplace in that range. Um. So, here's the courtroom scene starts to get set up in in verse two, or at least the idea of a courtroom. God is calling. God is uh, Yahweh, the Father God, is calling to attention. He's calling the creation to attention. It's like, hear, O heavens, hear, O earth, give ear, uh, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. Do any of you have rebellious children? <laughs> Just two of you, okay. The rest of you have better kids. <laughs> yeah, re- think of what that does to you um, emotionally, especially when your children are rebellious. It breaks your heart, right? It also probably creates some strife and some frustration and some anger at times. Um, Righteous indignation. God certainly would have righteous indignation toward his children who were rebellious. He's reared them. He's brought them up. He, remember, he brought them out of Egypt. He protected them. He carried them through the desert for 40 years in their rebelliousness. Sent them into the promised land. As Pastor Rick often points out, it's like he's carrying his bride across the threshold and she's jumping out of his arms you know, to run off and go do something else. Well, this is this is the payback that he's had from his children that he's reared and brought up. They've rebelled and... But he's calling—he's uh, calling the witness of the creation, which is the creation around us—is the only thing, which is everything but us, right? Everything but humans. Um, it obeys God all the time; does exactly what it's supposed to do. It functions exact—well, functions exactly the way that God created it to. In a fallen world, um, only humanity rebels against God. And other places, it says that the whole creation groans, waiting um, for the redemption that's to come, right? He goes on and he says, the ox knows its owner, the, donk, the donkey, its master's crib. They're smart enough to understand who I am, essentially. Uh, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. And then you really hear his emotion here. It's like, ah, oh, sinful nation. You're a people laden with iniquity. People burdened with this unequally yoked because of of how you're acting with this iniquity. Um, an offspring of evildoers. It just continues to pile up. Children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, and they're utterly est- estranged. Do you remember the three things that Rob shared last week that, that uh, God was accusing them of, or that they were guilty of too, but that he's bringing out? He's bringing it out in these passages here. The first one was, uh, maybe this will jog your memory a little bit. The first one was idolatry, Right? Uh, They were going after other gods all the time. The second was uh, uh, social injustice, right? Buzzword in our day and time and in our culture. Social injustice. And then the third one, which he gets out here a little bit later, but the third one was ceremonial uh, religion or ceremonial ritualism. Essentially... Following the letter of the law, and thinking that that was going to please God, and he gets to that a little bit later when he starts talking about he doesn't he takes no pleasure in the burnt offerings. Um, so, verse five: Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart. There's there's nothing good to be found within you, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it only bruises and sores and raw wounds and they're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil there's there's all of those things were medications they would have been salves to put on they would it would be like there's no antibiotics there's no uh neosporin there's no um the sun no aloe vera you know to take care of the sunburn there's there's no medication that's helping with the the sickness uh the depravity that's going on in the country your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. You're being taken over by foreigners. It's desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. Remember also in this time frame, Assyria was the major political or major uh, um, the major power in the area, and they were coming in from the north and invading the northern tribes on a regular basis, and also coming down and making incursions into the southern tribes at times. In fact. Uh, Isaiah's message all the time was, "Hey, trust the Lord." This is what he was telling them in Kings, in Second uh, Kings, fifteen through twenty. Trust the Lord; they're not going to be able to come in if you're trusting the Lord. And and Hezekiah essentially is the only one who really trusted um, and was rewarded for his trust. Um, so foreigners are coming in; they're devouring the land; they're taking over. Uh, and it's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Verse 8. And the daughters of Zion, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Uh, in the, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. We would have been completely wiped out if it wasn't for the Lord rescuing some of us. And you remember Sodom and Gomorrah were both like, Instantly just incinerated, right? Um, and Isaiah is comparing the destruction done there to what would have happened to Israel if God wouldn't have intervened and protected them from their enemies. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now he's comparing the leaders in Jerusalem and in Judah to, to the leaders, uh, the rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Uh, Verses 11 through 20, the the religious situation. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove your evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, skin, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." So he's speaking directly into the religious uh, temperature of the day, the, the climate, the religious climate that they're in. Um, and what's all this about God not being pleased with the sacrifices? Isn't that exactly what he told him to do? I mean, that's the Torah, right? The, that's Leviticus. That's the whole sacrificial system. And God's saying, I'm tired of it. Stop. Why are you doing this? Um, it, it sickens me, essentially, saying I, and what he's saying. And essentially what he's getting at is, There's hypocrisy in everything that they're doing. They're putting on this show on the outside, but their hearts aren't changed. They're coming and they're worshiping at the temple and they're offering burnt offerings and going through the motions, essentially, and then they're turning around and going out and and whoring with other gods, whoring with idols. God says, stop. Just stop. It's It's not about the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings weren't to please God. The burnt offerings were to show them how sinful they were. What it costs, the cost of sin. Um, It costs all of this sacrifice in order for you to be cleansed of sin. That was the idea behind him. And he's saying, you're just going through the motions. Even to the point of, uh, he says, it's an abomination. Incense is an abomination to me. Don't bring any more sacrifices or any more offerings, verse 13. And new moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. These are the festivals that God would have given to them, again, in the Torah. Instructions on how to live a holy life. Um, Do these things. And these times of the year, God says, stop. You're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Um, I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So you're coming into a sol- solemn assembly a s- solemn, solemn assembly, with hypocrisy in your heart, with sin in your life, with no real desire to know me. You're just going through the motions. You're trusting in ceremonial ritualism. Um, you're trusting in religion rather than having a relationship with me. That same thing can happen in our lives very easily in the new covenant when we start to think that, again, the things I talked about earlier, our prayer life, how much time we spend in the word, and if we're not regularly coming before the Lord and seeking, uh, just repenting for the things that all of us do on probably a regular basis that are displeasing to him um, and getting back into a right relationship with him, then we should just stop doing all the other things. It's like, why are you doing them? Going to church isn't helping, isn't, isn't fixing your problem, okay? Um, going to church is good, but not if it's happening for the wrong reasons. Verse 14, your new, moon, new moons and appointed feasts, my soul hates. Ah, they become a burden to me, and I'm weary of them, weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, you make these outward emotional pleas. I'm going to hide my eyes from you because you're of your iniquity. And even though you pray, I'm not going to listen. Your hands are full of blood, not only the blood of of the sacrifices that they're making, but they're full of the blood of their countrymen. They're full of the blood of of the vulnerable in their uh, their culture, in their community, in their town, in their nation. Um, They're not dealing rightly. Verse 17, he says, uh, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, correct the oppressors. It's probably an even better way to to, uh, translate that in verse 17. Actually correct those who are bringing the injustice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So social justice is quite important to God. Um, And as an evangelical Christian in America concerned about our southern border, that sometimes is a hard topic to talk about. Uh, And there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things, right? And I'm not condoning Things that are happening at our, on our border um, seems kind of like a sieve right now. But we also, at the same time, have to have compassion for these people that live in other countries that uh, don't have, one, many of them don't have the gospel, but two, they're seeking a better life for themselves and for their kids. Now, should they do that through the correct route? Absolutely. Through a legal, through legal means? Personally, I think so, yes. Um, but at the same time, we need to have Compassion. We need, so perhaps we need to change our thinking in those kind of social justice areas and not let it just be a catchphrase that, that maybe turns some of us off because it it's too liberal for me. I'm not about social justice. Well, God is about social justice. Um, and it's quite important to him. Verse 18, we sing a song that includes this. We didn't tonight, but it, come now, let us reason together, you and I, um, and it makes it sound like God wants to sit down and have tea and crumpets with us or coffee. This is a little stronger verbiage here that's going on. He's like, come on, what's the matter with you? Let's, we can reason together. You, you think you're doing it right? Well, tell me why. Have an argument with me. It reminds me of the conversations he has with Job. Like, where were you when I was putting the stars in place? Where were you when I was putting the, the borders for the sea, you know, giving it its boundaries? Um, where were you, Job? Well, where, where were you, Israel? Come on, why do you think this is right? Come argue with me if you want, but, but uh, let's have a conversation about it. Your, your sins are like scarlet, and then there's this mercy, but they're, they're going to be as white as snow, red as crimson, but they'll be like wool. They'll be pure and holy. If, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I'm not positive there's a connection here, but when I read that, it makes me think of a New Testament verse when it talks about the, the, God's word being like a two-edged sword, being able to, to uh, cut through bone and marrow and separate the bone from the marrow, and um, his word is what's going to eat up those who refuse and rebel. Uh, verses 21 through 26, the social situation happening. How the faithful city has become a whore She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Social justice again. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get my relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So again, he's talking here about their idolatry The city, the faithful city, once was faithful and right and just, it's become a whore. Um, Once she was full of justice and now murderers abound there. And he, then he begins to talk about this uh, this process of drawing the dross of, off of, out of them, right? He's talking about discipline that's going to come upon them. Discipline that will do good in their lives and bring goodness about it. It will bring back that justice because, as it says at the end there, afterward you shall be called once again the city of righteousness and a faithful city. But there's a process. And all of the prophets always told Israel, lean into the process, lean into the discipline. Um, God's doing this. He's going to deliver you out of it, but you've got to cooperate with it when it's happening. Christian friend, when we have discipline happening in our lives, for whatever reasons, uh, we need to cooperate with that discipline, trusting that God is going to carry us through, see us through to the end, and that it's going to be for our good. 27-31, uh, resolving this tension here that's between judgment and hope. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in, who, in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together, with none to quench them. There's this idea happening here of either there's a decision to be made, and the outcome is either going to be judgment or redemption. Um, those who repent in Jerusalem are going to see righteousness. But those who are rebelling and who are sinners, they're going to be broken. Um, and, and consumed by the Lord in verse 29 when it's talking about they will be ashamed uh, of the oaks that you desired it might and the gardens it, it's quite likely here talking about the high places where they would go and and have um, fertility rituals and and uh, worship other gods that that's going to bring shame upon them and rightly so when we when we're sinful shame should come upon us. Um, Shame is a good thing it's a corrective in our lives Um, but then in verse 30 it kind of shifts the way that he's using the tree and the garden as a metaphor here he's he's actually talking now about strength um, the strength that's in a tree and yet it's gonna be like a tree planted with without water right and um, with no root system nothing down into the ground to uh, give it nourishment and it's going to be dry and a spark's going to burn it up, uh, potentially quickly and easily. So just to recap here, God has laid out this, uh, these charges against Israel in this first chapter. And again, he's called all of creation as his witnesses against what they've done. Um, and he's accusing them of those three main points, idolatry social injustice and relying upon the sacrifices the religious ritualism to protect them and all the way through here he's saying that's not this is not how it's going to, that's, that's not going to work <laughs> it's not going to help you come back to relationship with me repent um, trust me and repent come back be like the tree be like the tree planted near uh, near the stream whose roots run deep and it draws nourishment from the stream that's it's planted next to you And where does that nourishment come from? From us, God's word um, is our main source. So, Christian friend, repent of the things that are in your life that you need to repent of. I know I have things that I need to repent from on a regular basis. Um, And trust in God in whatever circumstances you find yourself in, uh, because he will restore and if you're, if, you're in, um, if you're in a season of discipline in your life right now, lean into that. Trust that God has good purpose in it for you um, and that he will carry you all the way through that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful uh, for your word and Lord... Um, As as a group, Father, just uh, really as a nation, we repent of the things that that we do as a country, Father, that are against your will and against your way. Uh, We ask, Father, that you would provide righteousness in our our land, that you would provide leaders that are righteous, leaders that uh, seek after you, Lord, on a local level, a state level, and a national level. And, Lord, I know... I'm confident that that all starts at home. So I pray, Father, I just repent of my own wrongdoing, my own sinful behavior, my own rebelliousness toward you, Father. Would you please uh, well, thank you that you do forgive us, Lord. Um, help us to, to live better, to live holy lives, to live in the obedience of the things that you've called us to do and to be, to be holy, to be set apart, to be priests, for you, priests, um, to those around us, which really just means representing you, um, to be people that share regularly about the good things that you've done in our life, uh, how you've rescued us, Lord, to share that with our neighbors, to share that with our friends, share it with our family. And Lord, we're trusting in you to to do this work in our lives, to bring us to a point of maturing and um, to a point of good and right relationship with you. We thank you that through your son Jesus, you've made that possible, that you have re, re, uh, redeemed us, and that his sacrifice is sufficient to draw us into and to make us uh, worthy to be in your presence once again, Lord. Father, we look forward to um, to the day of your return and at the same time, Lord, we pray for those in our lives that we know that aren't following after you yet, and we ask that you would open their hearts and minds and draw them into relationship with you, Lord. Uh, So please do this work, Father, and we love you and are grateful and thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen.